A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23 and of course Johnny goes nuts. So I'm getting first time thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you make the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time and I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now... Introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode four. Thanks for joining me. Go to inallairness.com for show notes and plenty more features. The social hub for the podcast is facebook.com slash inallairness. If you haven't already, please like the page and join the growing community of fans. Add the podcast to your RSS feed or iTunes so you never miss another show. It's also available on Stitcher, BlackBerry, Player FM, TuneIn Radio and numerous other podcatchers. I love hearing from listeners. On either site, you can send voicemail, comments or questions. With your permission, I'd love to include your feedback on future episodes. You can follow me on Twitter at InAllAnnis. My guest today has made a name for himself in the USA, across Europe and beyond. He represented Australia at numerous Olympics and had the honour of being flag bearer and team captain at Sydney 2000. The tag greatest basketballer Australia has ever produced may not sit too comfortably on his shoulders, but without his contribution to the game, it wouldn't be where it is today. Andrew Gaze, thanks for joining me. No problem at all. It's a pleasure. Now, I'm not trying to embarrass you to start off with here, but just to give the listeners some perspective about the introduction, I just want to quickly reel off a few incredible career achievements. Firstly, here in Australia, 612 NBL games played, Rookie of the Year, two NBL championships with a career average over 30 points a game, seven MVP awards, and you were named the greatest player of the first 25 NBL seasons. Then, your international career. You played almost 300 games for Australia, captained Australia from 1993 through to 2000. You played for Seton Hall in the 1989 NCAA Championship game, played in Italy and Greece, suited up for the Washington Bullets, and then some years later were a member of the NBA champion, San Antonio Spurs, and played at four world championships and also five Olympic Games. Now, looking back on your career, can you even imagine that uh, would have transpired in that time? No, not at all. It's um, You always start out as a youngster uh, hoping for the best, and I guess being born into an environment where I was surrounded by the support by the sport because of what my, my father's occupation. My, my dad was the general manager of uh, Basketball Victoria, mm-hmm. and um, this is from the early 60s. And uh, what happened was is that they had this new facility that was going to be the home of the sport, not just for Victoria, but really for Australia here in uh, in. In Melbourne, it was uh, at, at Albert Park. There was these old army warehouse storage facilities that were being converted, no longer required. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and they were being converted to sport. And one of the one of these um, these these storage facilities was allocated to basketball. Another one was to badminton. Another one was to squash. And subsequently, in that precinct where these uh, buildings were, they they built a, a squash court as well, so squash center as well. So um, my dad, being the general manager of basketball Victoria. Um, in their wisdom, when they were converting these stadiums into sport, yep. um, they they decided to the basketball decided to build a little manager's residence. There was this little cottage that was built wedged between the badminton and the basketball, and um, that's where the manager of that facility lived. And uh, so, from the time I was born to the time I was thirteen or fourteen. I lived in this pretty unique environment where I had a nine-court basketball stadium in my backyard, and also got to dabble with all these other sports in the in this precinct. So um, that combined with the expertise of my dad being uh, the, the coach of the uh, a player and a coach of the Australian national team, gave me, I think, uh, probably a, a, a significant advantage over many of my peers because. Of the environment uh, that I was growing up in that uh, just enabled me to play whenever I wanted to play and, and, and in many instances was forced to play because, um, you know, I, I was living in, in this environment where I was exposed to basketball on a daily basis. So um, I was lucky enough to, to uh, develop the skills and have the, the guidance of my parents that taught me the game and gave me an understanding of all those types of, of how um, – you know, you need to play and conduct yourself. That I think enabled me to to um, go on and play elite basketball. Excellent, definitely a very unique setup when you're growing up, no doubt. Just before we do delve into your early career, Andrew. Now that you mentioned your dad, of course, Lindsay, who's very famous and well known around the world in basketball circles himself. It seems it took him a bit of time to be convinced to become involved with basketball in the first place. Is it possible to put into words perhaps the role that your your family, but particularly your dad, played throughout your storied career? Oh, it's it's um, immeasurable. Uh, it was one of those things. Without uh, his guidance and motivation, um, and probably even more importantly, his knowledge of of uh, the game and, and how to teach the game, then I have no doubt that uh, I would not have been able to play at any level. Uh, I wasn't an individual that was necessarily blessed with great athleticism or, or those types of things or, or, or physical attributes that you'd look at and identify and say, gee, there's the uh, the raw t- raw materials to, to make something um, reasonable happen. But um, I think, uh, you know, he not only was what I was able to do with me personally in, in teaching me the game and giving me an understanding of it, but what he did for the sport here in Victoria and, and right throughout Australia in administratively developing the game, developing facilities, those types of things, setting up competitions, every aspect of the game uh, he was significantly involved in. And, um, you know, the influence that he had on me and I'd say many, many others is uh, immeasurable. Yeah, no, no doubt. Now, sorry about the phone ringing there. Obviously, a few people want to have a chat to you today. Now, the Andrew Gay's story, the book I was talking about uh, that I read in preparation for our chat today, uh, it's an excellent read and it's filled with your sense of humour and talent, how it is nature that you're well known for here in Australia. 
speaking about your athleticism there, or perhaps lack of, as you say, the phone's gone again, they love it. Um, <laughs> I just need to ask you right off the bat about a, a huge dunk that you threw down on an unsuspecting Geelong Supercats player back in the NBL, probably <laughs> 92-93. You know the dunk I'm referring to? I certainly do, and um, <laughs> I, unlike many of the baskets that I shot throughout my NBL career, not very few of them were actually dunks. There was probably, you know, in in 600 and whatever games it was, there might have been probably across them all 20 or 30 dunks. <laughs> yeah. um, so there, there was not a lot of um, uh, athleticism in that area of the game shown, but... Um, I remember that one because it was at Geelong and uh, we weren't going particularly well. It was a struggle of a game and um, coming down and Leonard Copeland was running down the right side and normally I was, you know, just going to throw it throw it up there and fortunately playing alongside a superstar like Leonard Copeland who had freakish athleticism, you just throw the ball anywhere near the backboard and he'd go get it. Sure. Um, but on this occasion, Darren Rowe was the, the player that was running back on this two-on-one situation. And uh, just, uh, I don't know what came over me. I, I thought, you know what, I just might go up here and, and have a crack at this. And <laughs> all the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and uh, and throw one down. So it, uh, I think it, it sh- to me, I thought, oh, yeah, I, I've dunked it. You don't. You know, I didn't think it was too much of a big deal, but judging by the reaction of my teammates, you know, Lennart in particular and Mark Brakey, they sort of looked at me as if something uh, extraordinary happened. And I, at the time, couldn't really understand. You know, I was psyched, pumped because I got the two points and yeah. it was a, bit of a dunk, but I didn't really uh, realise until that night. Fortunately, it was a, a Channel 10 game. Mm-hmm. And uh, went back and I, and I saw a replay and I thought, oh, gee, that you know, that's not too bad for me. Yeah. <laughs> Not bad at all. That's that's understudy. I think uh, was it Stephen Quartermain that was calling the game at that time. I'm not sure. I think it was. It was him. at Stephen Quartermain and Dean Templeton. Yes, I think Quartermain was going to say, oh, "Here's an alley to Copeland." He was pretty much used to saying that, and yeah. then all of a sudden he was just gone straight down the line and jammed it in. Uh, well, Darren Rowe's face, as you said, so crazy, crazy dunk, but one of one of the favourite things I've seen you do in your career, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they felt a bit sorry for him because they back then Channel Ten they had a a show, you know, um, a magazine-type show that they used to do in conjunction with covering the games, and they had their their uh, top plays of the week, and I think it might have been the top player of the week, but at the end of the year, they had their top uh, 10 dunks, and I think it was, they, they put it as the number two dunk of the, <laughs> year, the year, which it, which it really wasn't, but I think just for surprise value, they uh, they gave it to me, I, they ranked me the number two. Uh, it's pretty awesome. It's probably a name that, that most people wouldn't maybe expect in the, in the top 10 dunk list, but still it's very, very impressive, no doubt. In your formative years of playing basketball, it seems clear that you obviously were loved, loved the sport. You're brought up around uh, basketball and played numerous games a week and also competed in divisions well above your age at the time. Can you just talk about the formative years and, and playing against these older and stronger opponents and, and how it actually did help your game? Yeah, because of the nature of where I, I lived, um, from the time, I can't even really remember the official time when I started actually playing, but um, mm-hmm. you know, even going back to when I was six or seven and I was in grade one, I was playing with the grade sixes because 
back then, um, you know, not a lot of people even knew the rules of the game or knew much about it, and I could at least dribble and and, and shoot the ball. So yeah. I was always um, at school. You know, the teacher would say, "What sports do you play?" You put your hand up and you say basketball, and 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 literally. You know, half the class wouldn't even know what it was. They'd think it's net that hurt a netball, a bit of mm. a sissy sport, all those types of things. So that um, it was a little unusual to be focusing on basketball in 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 the schoolyard environment. But um, uh, because of the, the the housing and where we lived, uh, regularly I'd be just wandering around the courts at night, mm-hmm. and uh, there'd be a team that were shorter player and they needed someone in order not to give a walkover and they'd see me hanging around and they'd say, hey, can you come and help us out and jump on court and, and have a game? Yeah. And uh, when, I, you know, when you're young and you're you know, 11, 12, even 13 and, you, and you're in that type of situation where you're, you're up against men and quite often they were older men yeah. um, who, who aren't, weren't necessarily skilled playing recreational basketball on a Monday, Tuesday, or Thursday night, um, you know, I'd always just jump in there and do what I can. And you, you, you learn about uh, how to look after yourself. You learn a lot about, you know, what's going to upset your opposition. And and uh, a lot of the time there was a lot of self-preservation going on because yeah. the nicest people can get some uh, white line fever. And <laughs> when you're a youngster out there that's knocking down shots or, or doing that type of stuff, uh, they can the competitive instincts kick in, and and sometimes it was a little intimidating. But um, you know, and, and the same would apply on, on junior competitions. When I was under twelves and under fourteens, we'd play our games. The younger kids would play earlier, mm-hmm. and be, and uh, I'd hang out at the stadium because my dad was coaching at at, at the various levels. And if the under 14s, 16s, 18s or were missing players in any of the grades, that uh, I'd always be hanging around and be more than willing to jump on, on a court and, and, and help them out. So when I look back on it, I think that that was really the area that gave me, I think, uh, a bit of an advantage because I just I played so much. Many yeah. of the, the, the teams would just, you know, even the junior teams would play once a week and maybe at best train t- twice a week. But um, with all the games that I was playing and particularly against bigger bodies and older people, I think that that really uh, fast-tracked some of my development. For sure. But in the first three or four years of the NBL career, playing for your beloved Melbourne Tigers, you put up some amazing individual numbers and were a staple atop the year-end scoring lists. Uh, so individual success was, was not a problem. But can you perhaps just discuss for a moment your the team at that time and some of the on-court struggles for success? Yeah, the, the league was going through this radical change of the professionalism coming into the game in, in all aspects, but probably most significantly in that um, players were actually becoming more professional and, and and getting paid to play. Yeah. And for us, the Melbourne Tigers, despite our, our long history in uh, Australian basketball, in fact, the oldest club in Australia, um, we never actually uh, entered into the NBL until 1984. Mm. And, and prior to that, and the league was started in 1979 and prior to that we played in the um the next level back in 80 to 81 and 82 the difference between the other league which at the time was called the sec the southeastern conference mm-hmm. 
it's gone on to have many different name changes. Today, it's it's referred to as the SEABL. Yes. But but back then, it was called the the SEC. And the difference between the NBL and the SEC wasn't as significant as it is now. So in in, in 81, 82, and eighty three, um, we were playing in the Melbourne Tigers were playing in that league and uh, had teams from New South Wales and Tasmania and South Australia were in that that league as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, playing in there, we, we were always very strong. We we were runner-up in 1982. We won it in 1983. And in 1984, we, um, we went on and, and joined and transferred over and joined the NBL. And I don't know, I can't remember if it was just a coincidence or part of the process, but... In 1982, Geelong won the SE Southeastern Conference, the SEC, and they then graduated to the NBL. In, 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 that was in 81. And in 82, uh, the Frankston Bears won the SEABL and they graduated into the NBL. And subsequently, in 83, we won it yep. and we moved on. Now, I don't know whether that's just a coincidence or back then there, there might have been some process of promotion. Yeah. But um, nevertheless, uh, in 84 was our, our first year in the NBL, but we were still rank amateurs. No one on the team was getting paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and back then we had guys like Brian Gorgian and, and Bruce Palmer, Al Westover were, were some of my teammates. And um, in 84, we were okay without being great. We, we got off to a real slow start. And I, th- I think, in fact, Brian Gorgian... Uh, might have missed the start of the 84 season because he was thinking about retiring and then decided to play with us. And we started terribly but finished strong. And uh, I think we, we might have just missed out on the playoffs in, in, in 84. Uh, but then after that, with the professionalism in the sport, we we lost a few players. You know, they were going elsewhere where they could get paid. Yeah, yeah. And as, as such, in 85, 86, 87, we were still 100% rank amateurs and you know we were getting destroyed we'd only win three games four games two you know we were really not very good and um and it was a it was it was kind of a hard pill to swallow because even back then like you mentioned i was putting up some decent numbers individually but because you're losing all the time yeah sort of lost a bit of relevance but i think young and you just competing and, you know, you're not worried about the other elements. You're not getting paid. You know, you don't – the obligations of being a professional athlete weren't the same. So, you know, although it's bothering, you, you, you sort of can – you know, you get through it all. But then in um, in after the uh, 87 season, in 1988, you know, we got some some uh, benefactors to, to, to help the club out and – and administratively make some changes and provide some resources. And in 88, we were, you know, started to get some, I guess, expense money. But then in 1989, we, we were he- heading towards being more professional. And 89 is when I think we recruited Dave Colbert and Dave Simmons. And from that point on, we were again one of the more stronger teams in the competition. But um, that period, you know, from 85 to you know, even 88 were okay. I think we won eight or nine games. But yeah. so in that period there, we it was it was pretty tough going. Yeah, no, definitely. But I suppose it's good to have at least built up from being, as you said, the rank amateurs to then develop the club and it makes it even better. 
certainly down the track when it came to when you're uh, competing well in the playoffs and making it a run at the titles too, which I'll get to in a little while. But I just wanted to go back a little bit for a moment to your first Olympics back in 1984. I think you are only about 18 or 19 at the time. Yeah. In I LA. Turned, yep. I turned 19 during the Games. Oh, okay, there you go. So you turned nine, that's incredible to be 19 at the uh, Olympic Games playing for your country. Overall, Australia finished seventh, I think, at that time, and you scored about 10 points a game or thereabouts in around 15 or 20 minutes a game. Now, your boomers didn't face the gold medal winning uh, USA at that time, which featured, of course, Michael Jordan and a, mm-hmm. a whole stack of other future NBA players. But did you have any interaction with Team USA or, or watch any of their games from the stands throughout that tournament? Oh, most definitely. We, we, we saw them a few times play, and... Unfortunately, you know, the Olympic movement uh, throughout the 70s was going through a real tough time. Cities were going broke hosting them. You know, you had some tragedies along the way with Munich and you had the boycotts in in Moscow and, of course, the tit-for-tat boycott where the Americans didn't go in Moscow, so a lot of the Europeans and the Soviet Union didn't go in 84. So the Olympic movement was going through some real tough times and because of that, um, the Los Angeles Olympics, um, they changed it a little bit in, in, in order to try and uh, help with the cost. They actually had two different Olympic villages. They had a, a village at UCLA and they had a village at U- USC. Okay. And the Australian team, we, we stayed at USC, but the United States team, they were staying at UCLA. So unlike it, it, it has been, it was prior to that and subsequent to that where all the teams stay in the one village uh we never had got the opportunity to interact with many of the americans because i was staying in a different location as yeah. far as the village is concerned but um we would go and, and we would have access to both villages so uh i remember one time we went to the ucla to just to have a look at their village compared to ours yeah yeah and um and yeah, we, we did see a lot of the American players and you know, the the basketball community being what it is, you do say good day. I don't think it was anything significant, but other than coming across the fellas and saying good day, that type of stuff. So I wouldn't necessarily say that we became lifelong buddies with any of the players, but we did get to, to talk to them a little bit and, and share some time and um and of course back then, you know, we got to meet Michael Jordan, but it wasn't he wasn't Michael Jordan then. He was just yes. this unbelievable college talent that everyone was projecting to be a superstar. But it, yeah. he, he, he certainly didn't have the same status and um, that he that he went on to to, to earn. And it was not as if we thought, oh, we're meeting perhaps the greatest basketball player ever to play the game at the time. So it didn't have that same sort of impact. It was still it was, it was a great experience. And fortunately for us, we had a, a pretty good Olympic Games campaign and. I got to learn a lot. I was playing behind Phil Smythe and, and Wayne Carroll were ahead of me. Damien Keogh was also on that team as one of the other guards. So it was, um, you know, it was, it was a great experience. Yeah, great, no, no doubt. Now, I'd like to take a moment to discuss your relationship with some of the brightest stars who arrived on the scene uh, here in Australia during the mid to late 1980s. And I'm talking about perhaps Luke Longley, Mark Bradkey and Shane Heal, who are probably three of the most known players at that time. Do you mind just for a moment talking about your time playing together representing Australia and perhaps any insights into their off-court or even (laughs) on-court personalities? They're they're all different. And the the thing about those three is they spent time together 
at the Institute of Sport. So they came through the ranks together and, um, you know, they were very intimate as far as their relationship was concerned because, you know, they spent, they lived in each other's pockets for many years as youngsters um, coming through the ranks at the, the AIS, whereas I, I never attended the AIS. But um, coming together with the uh, the national team and, and you, you know, you forge those bonds and, and certainly with all three of those guys who were bona fide superstars, mm-hmm. you know, got to, to, to know them and learn a lot about them and, and come become very good friends. And they're all different. Um, they, they, they all have different personalities. You know, Luke's the sort of guy that, um, you know, if, if to try and explain him, he, he's one of those guys that uh, he, he never looked stressed or – one of the, no matter what the circumstances is, he, he, he's you get the feeling that he's never ever going to die of a heart attack for <laughs> worrying about anything because he just had this real laconic sort of um, casual approach to things. Mm-hmm. But having said that, you know, it's still all of them fiercely competitive. Whereas Mark Radke and Shane Hill are probably a lot more extroverted. Yeah, uh, I never. Th- Found Luke to be a guy that 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 absolutely loved the game. He was unbelievably talented and certainly enjoyed the camaraderie and the mateship and all those types of things. Yep. But you know, he was one of these guys that knew what it took to to get the job done. Was very very professional about it, but never had this. Uh, never seemed to have this overwhelming, burning um, desire. Just, just a, a great determination to succeed. Mm-hmm. That may sound like a bit of a contradiction, but it's uh, you know it's sort of the best way to, to, to describe it. And um, you know, on the flip side of that, you have someone like Shane Heal, who you know just fiercely competitive. <laughs> no. no matter what you're doing, whether it's you know having a playing a a game of pool in the Olympic. Um, recreational center or you're playing 10 pin bowling or you're playing for a, a medal at the Olympic Games just fiercely fiercely competitive and was someone who was able to uh, extract every ounce of ability he got the absolute very best out of himself because of that fierce determination to um, to succeed and and certainly take a backward step to no one which we saw I think in a very famous incident with Charles Barkley prior to the 1996 Olympics and Mark Radke was uh, sort of in between them both in that very, very competitive, mm-hmm. uh, had a great zest for life and, and, and enjoyed the camaraderie and, and all other things that, that you know, a, a risk taker off the court, um, but, um, but just a, an unbelievable athlete, 6'10", that could run with the guards and jump with the best of them and just around the basket, just a, a rebounding freak. Mm-hmm. Um, so strong. And, 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 you know, 6'10", you think, gee, that's a, a big fella. But on the international stage, you know, he was going up against guys that made him look small, but mm. he was able to um, uh, punch above his weight because of his just the, his strength. So they're all different and all had a, a very, very significant impact on the game and and Luke is one of those guys I think that here in Australia as much recognition as he's got people probably don't realize you know or, or, or give him enough credit for for what he did on the NBA stage and 
most people, when you th- think of, well, what's the, or ask the question of, of what's the greatest team ever to play the game, certainly in the conversation, and some would argue the best team ever was that period when Luke was playing with the Chicago Bulls alongside Scottie Pippen and, and Michael Jordan, and, and he's the starting centre on what many people would argue is the greatest basketball team ever put together is a uh, is it a remarkable achievement and um, one that I think here in Australia we understand the general sporting public understand that he was great but I don't really think they know how great he was I wholeheartedly agree with that I think he's uh, achieved some amazing things and to be on those three championship teams in the in the second three peat of the Bulls there and being the starting center just an incredible uh, incredible feat I'd love to actually catch up and speak to him at some stage down the track about his time with the Bulls and the Boomers and, and all that sort of stuff. So if you can maybe put in a good word for me sometime, that'd be good. Uh, he, he's, he's more than happy to talk. He's a, he's a great fellow, Luke, and uh, he would be more than happy to give you some time. There's no doubt about that. He, he loves to talk hoops and um, loves. I'm sure he, he loves rec- going over and, uh, and reminiscing about some of the times he had with the Bulls and, um, and of course, with the Boomers. That would be sensational. And I, I do plan to ask a question down the track as well uh, to you about that Hammer versus Barkley run-in from the, uh, the pre-Olympic game in uh, 1996. So I'll get, I'll get to that as well. So, But, yeah, great insight there on some a greater mix of personalities and obviously some incredibly talented players along the way there too. Just with the 1988 Olympic Games, Australia made it to the medal round Oh, the medal playoff round, and you faced the USA in a matchup for bronze. And the USA was anchored, uh, pun intended, by your future Spurs teammate David Robinson, along with other soon-to-be NBA stars like Mitch Richmond and Danny yep. Manning, Percy Hawkins, those sort of guys. Um, what are your memories of that game, the playoff for bronze, and just your second Olympics in general? You were on court a lot more, and obviously became a, an integral part of the Aussie team by that stage. Yeah, it was um, it was a difficult challenge and, and one that the Americans were thinking they were going to go there and uh, win the gold medal, of course. Mm. And the team they had, you mentioned that some of the players are just uh, outstanding ta- talent. And Dan Marley was another one, and yeah. Charles Smith, I think, was another one. So they had they had all the um, the bases covered, and um, we had an outstanding tournament, and we beat Spain. Uh, in the history of Australian basketball, we'd never ever beaten Spain, and we were able to beat them in the quarterfinal game, which was just a, a remarkable game and and one where we, um, you know, we, we we weren't expected to win that and win that particular game, and we were able to to to, to get the win to advance. And we uh, assumed that uh, we'd probably be going to play in against the um, the Soviet Union, um, but what happened was is that. Uh, Yugoslavia caused, um, excuse me, the Soviet Union caused an upset in that they uh, beat the United States in the semi-final game. Mm. So, um, and and unfortunately for us, we uh, lost against Russia. I think it was. So Russia played Yugoslavia in the final, and we were up against the United States. Who, you know, to Russia's credit, they did a a fantastic job in in um, being able to beat them, beat the United States, but it made the United States uh, extremely angry. Mm, no and doubt. I think it's one of those ones, if, if, if the Soviet Union played the United States 10 times, I reckon the United States would probably would have won eight of them. Yeah. I, I think that they were, 
you know, they just were too young, a little young and, and not ready for the circumstances. But the reality of it all was that, you know, as good as the Soviet Union were with all the talent they have, I still think that the United States should have beaten them. But um, in that particular game, when we then are now facing, we thought we were going to have another crack at, um, uh, you know, at, 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 Yugos- at um, Yugoslavia. Um, or the Soviet Union, who we'd played the Soviet Union five games prior and we lost to them one of the games in overtime when we played them in preparation for the Seoul Olympics here in Australia. So we're thinking, geez, you know, if we get, if we get the Soviet Union again in the bronze medal game, uh, we, you know, we consider ourselves a remote chance. Yeah. Unfortunately, it didn't go according to the script. Yeah. And Soviet Union won, and we had to face the United States, and we were never ever in the game. Mm. They, uh, they extended the defense. Uh, John Thompson, the coach of Georgetown, he was the head coach. He was renowned for his defensive pressure, so they were full court presses the whole game, and oh. we never were uh, were a chance. But despite uh, losing that game and losing, uh, you know, by a fairly reasonable margin, uh, we were still had. Just over the moon of, of making it through to to, the, to have a chance to play for a medal, and oh, yeah. we lost. Our disappointment at losing that game was very short lived because we reflected back on the Olympics in its entirety, and we're very very proud of what we're able to do. Yeah, now at that time, I think that still the equal best finishing for the Aussie Boomers at the Olympics ever, isn't it? Is that correct? It is first time that ever we'd ever play Australia ever played off for a medal, and yeah. I in the same games, the Opals also played off for a medal, and unfortunately, they came up short as well. But um, yeah, it was the first time that we'd, we'd Australian team had ever done that, so we made a bit of history. And I think that it also um, it was a sort of a coming out party as far as the rest of the world is concerned to, to, to realise that you know we, we had some talent and we we're a very young team. Adrian Hurley, the coach, um, you know, went for youth. Selecting guys like Andrew Vlahoff and Luke Longley and and uh, Mark Bradkey in particular for those games, so it was um, a, a real coming out party for us, and it, it made the rest of the world sort of stand up and take note that uh, we'd arrived on the international scene. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, now, your Melbourne Tigers toured the USA back in 1986, following what you described in your book as a, a horrible NBL season. Whilst, yeah. whilst on that tour of the Big A schools, the Tigers played eight games in 13 days and you saved your best for last, dropping a lazy 46 points on Seton Hall. From that moment, the Pirates were keen to obtain your services for the uh, upcoming or, or future uh, NCAA seasons. Can you just recall your performance in that game that first got the attention from Seton Hall and what actually happened to then land you on the roster to play for Seton Hall in 1988-89? Yeah, we were playing that series. We were playing against, you know, teams like Syracuse and Connecticut and Georgetown, uh, all the, the, the major schools in the, the Big East Conference. Pittsburgh was very strong back then. And uh, we started the tour with a loss. We played Boston College. And then um, the next game of the tour, I think it was we played against University of Connecticut. Now, um, Jim Calhoun, the famous coach, is on to win a couple of national titles at Connecticut. He was in his formative years of um, of his time with uh, Connecticut, and we we beat him. 
Uh, we beat UConn, and I had a pretty decent game in that one as well. And when we played St. John's, is another team that's just up the road from Seton Hall mm-hmm. um, in New York. And uh, I remember after the game, the coach of Seton Hall, PJ Calissimo, was actually at our game against St. John's, and he came into the locker room afterwards and was talking to my dad because my dad knew PJ's dad. And uh, he said g'day to me, but I didn't think anything of it. And we went on, continued on the tour, and then um, uh, eventually got the chance to play against Seton Hall. And it was the last game of the tour. And we, and uh, and as you mentioned, I was able to put up some points. And yeah. did, honestly, just we were actually buggered because we played so many eight games in thirteen days, and we didn't fly to any one city. We were in these little vans driving around because we were. Poverty-stricken tigers. Oh, yep, yep. And uh, you know, we were just bugging and just wrapped that the the tour would finally end, so we get some vacation time. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that game, uh, the coaching staff came to me and initially went to my dad, and my dad said, "Yeah, go, you know, go for your life. Talk to Andrew. It's really his decision." And they were trying to get me to stay on from then. You know, absolutely not even go on a, a bit of a break with the team and, and uh, start up, they said, you know, I could start school in December, the middle of December and uh, enroll then and I could join the team immediately. Oh, okay. And it was kind of a bit of a shock. And at yeah. the time, you know, I was still keen on playing for Australia and um, uh, we had, the, the, it was in 86, so we had the Seoul Olympics coming up and I wanted to be a part of that and I was playing for my dad with the Melbourne Tigers. So I really, I was wrapped that they considered me, but I said, oh, no, you know, not really interested. But the, the assistant coach of the team, John Carroll, he um, he was persistent. So I turned him down then, and then, you know, the next season, the off-season, they'd call me up, and I was saying, no, oh, no, you know, I've got the Seoul Olympic Games coming up. and But he was relentless. So I, I shudder to think what his phone bill would have been because they were literally calling me, you know, once a week, every week. <laughs> What are you doing? How are you going? And as much as I said no, it was like they wouldn't take no for an answer. And, and in all honesty, it was only because of the Seoul Olympic Games in, in 88. The NBL, uh, they were in, going to be in the middle of the year. So the NBL actually started a lot earlier. Mm-hmm. So we normally starting in March, you know, April, that sort of period. But because of the 88 Olympics, we started earlier. But then um, in 89, it was going to go back to its regular s- spot. So it, it opened up this window where I could go to the Olympics, finish the Olympics, go play at Seton Hall, and then um, come back and, and, and continue to play with the Melbourne Tigers. And in all honesty, the major reason why I decided to go to uh, Seton Hall was, one was because they were so persistent, and I sort yeah. of like, like, like to say no all the time, but... Secondly, because of the Olympic Games, I was struggling to get through my my schooling. I was missing so much school preparing for the Olympics that I thought, well, here's a chance to go over there, play a bit of basketball, you know, have, a, have an experience, but also get two semesters of classes in that those credits would be transferred back to my course here. And if it wasn't for that, I would never have gone. Um, and Seton Hall were predicted to finish. I think there's nine teams in the Big East back then. I think we're um, back then and... I think we were predicted to finish seventh or eighth in our conference, not the nation, in yeah, our conference. Yeah. So pretty low expectations. And 
because that window of opportunity came and thought I can knock over some credits, I said, oh, yeah, why not? And sure enough, I was able to get some credits, but um, one of the most remarkable experiences of my life, just one of those things where you're in the right place at the right time where our, the Seton Hall were a lot better than the the, uh, the tipsters and the pre-season polls had us at, and we went on to play for a national championship and lost in overtime to University of Michigan in what is regarded as by many is one of the most memorable games in college history. So it was just a, an incredible set of circumstances that uh, enabled me to have that experience. Very much so. Now, yes, yeah, so Seton Hall that, that year that you did join them, uh, they went 31-7. and seven. Along the way, you were named MVP of the Sugar Bowl tournament. Now, just yeah. back, prior to that tournament, you'd actually contemplated returning back to Australia. What, what yeah, was it was a difficult time, you know, it was, I'd been playing a lot, I'd been playing the NBL season, then straight in the Olympic Games campaign, then straight back into Seton Hall, and, um, you know, trying to establish my role on the team was, was difficult, because the team was a lot better than predicted, and they had some great players on there, in fact, Ramon Ramos, who was the one of the the, the, the real um, major players for Puerto Rico, who we, I'd played against, at the Olympics, he was on the team, and they had John Morton, um, Jared Green, Darrell Walker, a veteran group that was coming through that just outstanding talent. And, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd come through primarily as a guard and, um, you know, uh, where I was a prominent member of the team and relied on to, to score a lot. All those things were, were, were there for me. And, um, you know, trying to take on a new role and do those things and just the fatigue of the workload, all those things was was starting to get to me. And I'm thinking, you know, is this really going to be helpful for me in the long run? Mm. And you start to second guess yourself. But but fortunately, I stuck it out. Yeah. And um, just and, and, and at that time, uh, my mum and my dad and my sister came over to visit for the Christmas period and... Um, they came to New Orleans for the Sugar Bowl tournament. I had a I had a pretty decent tournament and we did well. And and after that, it sort of everything fell into place. And you know, by the end of it, I didn't really didn't want to come home. I was having a great time and, and really enjoying it and playing a different role. You know, it wasn't like I was coming out there getting fifteen twenty shots a game. Yeah. You know, I was only getting sort of seven or eight shots a game, playing my role as a forward, doing things a little bit differently. And it was a great learning experience as well. Yeah, fantastic. Now, it's incredible to think, as, as we were saying, that in your one season at Seton Hall, so many things had to fall into the correct place for your team to even get to the, I guess, the tournament and then get to the Sweet 16, the Final Four, and then the, the championship game. Can you just reflect back for a moment on the championship game itself uh, where you were matching up against Glenn Rice at times as well? How, how was that? It was um, it was interesting. You know, you don't get a lot of time. We played against Duke in the semifinal. Mm-hmm. And you get a day off, and then the finals on the Monday. So you pl- we played on the Saturday. You have the Sunday off we, where we, we prepared for the game against Michigan. And then, um, you know, we played on the Monday. And Glenn Rice was a superstar. He uh prolific scorer, big guy, you know, 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, he was the main man of Michigan. And, um, you know, I was given a, a defensive assignment, which I guess many people would say that I failed <laughs> because uh, he had an outstanding game. He had 30, 30 plus. I can't remember exactly what he scored, but he had, he had over 30. Um, but, uh, and we were trying a whole different lot of ways to guard him, but he was just um, having one of those games. And uh, for me, uh, I, I'd had a, a good tournament and I guess, 
your success along the way, you're getting scrutinised, particularly throughout the tournament. The whole nation is focusing on just a few teams. Mm. And um, in the regional finals where we played against UNLV, Indiana and UNLV, I was actually awarded MVP of the, the Western region. That was the region we were in. So, And against Duke, I had 20 against Duke. And, um, you know, Michigan... Although they didn't have a lot of time prepared, they, they certainly um, uh, were making life difficult for me. Yeah. And uh, in the I can't exactly remember. I think I had five points in the game, and uh, I would have only had a hand. I, I might have had, uh, from recollection, five or six shots in the game, and I hit a three. The game went into overtime, and I made a three in overtime, but outside of that, I think I only I knocked down a couple of free throws, and, and that's about it. So... Um, you know, I, was, I played a lot, and um, you know, it wasn't like it was. I'd look back on it and say that was one of my worst games because those types of games were not uncommon throughout the season. I had many games where I was, you know, getting four or six, and because that was, you know, it was my role. I wasn't have the same role that I was um, normally accustomed to playing for the national team or, or playing for the Tigers. So it was just yeah. a, a different role, and you, and you do the best uh, with the role that you've been given. Yeah, no, sure. After your time at Seton Hall, you had some interest from multiple NBA teams. Uh, however, it was a phone call from the then Seattle coach, Bernie Bickerstaff, who's yeah. now with the Lakers as an assistant, that led to you attending their veterans tryout camp. Yeah, that- I was pretty, you know, said I was happy with the Melbourne Tigers. I was loving what I was doing with the with the Boomers and, mm-hmm. you know, life couldn't have been better and... Um, I had some invitations to go to a number of camp, you know, the 76ers were one of them. I think the Boston Celtics had, had made an inquiry. There was a number of inquiries to come and, and try out. And, and I, I I was wrapped. When you get the letter in the, the mail, because back, unlike it is today with the email and the means of communication, I remember yeah. coming home one day, I was still at, trying to get through uh, university, and um, to see a, a letter addressed to you and... On the the letter, it's got a you know the Sixers logo or the the um, Celtics logo. You're thinking it's got your name on the front of it. You, geez, you're pretty anxious to open those things up. But oh, so so, but I, I was realistic about it all, and you know, and, and look back on it now, I, I I probably wish that perhaps I I had a, had a bit more motivation to actually. Um, pursue it more aggressively, but I was pretty realistic about it all and, and, and didn't really think it was going to be a, a realistic chance. And with the Sixers and the Celtics and that, and I actually politely declined and said, oh, no, you know, I've got too much on unless there's something guaranteed and, you know, you're going to be a part of the team. I, I didn't think that going into that environment was going to be my best option. But the Seattle Supersonics, they were a bit more aggressive. They sent the letter, but then they had the coach of the team call me up mm. and, um, you know, and, and really encouraged me to, to come and be involved. And they, they were, were keen to have a have a good look at me. And I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. So I went and tried out with them and, and went the distance. And although I never made the team, uh, you know, cut, as most people say, last cut on the NBA roster. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was a few days before the regular season open. So I got the chance at the very least to go through the entire um, pre-season experience. And although I never made the team, it was, uh, you know, it was a real eye-opener and I, I learned a lot about it. And I think that it, it really did help my game, the development of the game. 
Yeah, sure. Now on that, also on that uh, Sonics team at the time, there was a rookie, Sean Kemp. You had uh, X Man, Xavier McDaniel, Dale Ellis, Sadale Threat, the Austra- Australian-based now, Sadale Threat, and a future teammate of yours, Avery Johnson, as well. Yeah, yeah, Avery was in, and Avery was being bounced around. Avery was another one that, you know, he he was on the team and had a guaranteed contract, but he was very much pretty, very low on the pecking order at the time. You know, he was still trying to find his way in the league as well. So. Um, yeah, it was you know to, to to spend some times with with those guys and uh, see how they go about it and just the, the sheer athleticism of, of it all. I remember Sean Kemp. I mean, he was this young fella straight out of high school. Well, actually, not out of high. I think he had he was um, had been at uh, a Tuck, junior. I think. Pardon me. Was he signed up by Kentucky but never actually played for them? Yeah, and I think he actually went and, and was sat out a year at uh, at a junior college. It might not. I don't know if he actually ever played, mm. but he was only you know still a very young man, nineteen, twenty years of age. Yeah, and the stuff that he came in this young bull that just just um, you know even the veterans, Olden Polonese was one of the big guys, and have this guy six ten, the way he run the floor and just the athleticism of the man. He was raw. Mm. And he was just, you know, you could tell that he's making a lot of mistakes, but just the sheer athleticism of him was was unbelievable. And, um, you know, he he was uh, him. Dana Burrows was another guy who played at Boston College that uh, had been drafted by Seattle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, being, the you know, the guys, the new guys coming in, you know, got to spend some time with them and um, hang out with them a little bit. And, and like I said, yeah, learn a little bit from them. Yeah, no, no doubt. If we had all day, I'd love to delve into your experiences about playing in Europe, plus chatting about well, many key Olympic Games battles that you're involved in. But, however, I realise your time is very precious and we simply can't cover everything. There's an indelible image of you hugging your dad, Lindsay, after you yep. won the 1993 NBL Championship. Uh, some people say that you were probably strangling at the time. Yeah. Uh, your Tigers, against the odds, you defeated a, a really stacked Perth Wildcats team for the title uh, in Perth, and that was your first ever win against Perth on their home floor. Now, do you mind just describing the feeling of winning that first NBL title, playing for the club that you literally grew up with, that was also coached by your dad? Yeah, it was it was remarkable, and um, you know, I still always feel indebted to to the club and the opportunities that I had, and and like I said, going, I think it makes it more special having gone through the hardship in order to get into the NBL and, and what we had to suffer through in, in order to survive, um, I think makes those experiences even greater. And, you know, the, the impact that my dad has had on me and to, to share that experience uh, with your dad in, in that type of in, in environment uh, is just something very, very special. And at the time, it, 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 the feelings are, are, are so unique Um it's not something that you can really necessarily accurately describe what internally you're going through. But um, not only was the excitement uh, for myself, but but also for my dad and, and, and his contribution and to, to, to get to a stage where, uh, you know, he, he'd suffered a lot as well with very competitive instinct and, and the hardship you go through to get to those points to finally reach the pinnacle in, in that pretty uh adverse situation it was um it was an unbelievable experience and probably even more so now as i've gone on through various stages of my life and i've had kids and um 
you know, I've got four kids of my own, three daughters and a son, um, you know, you, you, you get a greater appreciation for having those time to, to spend with your kids. And I think, um, you know, at the time I was excited and emotional because of the sporting and basketball experience. But as I've gone back on and looking at it now in, in retrospect, it's also uh, a remarkable father-son experience, which yeah. wasn't necessarily the way I was feeling at the time. It was more, he's the coach, you know, he's the guy that's helped me, teach me the game, all those types of things. So you're excited in that sense. And it, it probably wasn't until later on to to have that time to share with your, your dad and um, have those goals collectively and, and go through it, um, just something that, you know, meant so much to me, and and I guess the emotion of the situation uh, was was pretty significant at the time, but um, probably just as significant now uh, as it was at the time. Don't touch a thing, you that goes. Lahov to two, uh, and the Tigers for the first time in history have won the NBL title. Look at the Gaze family, Lindsay and Andrew. Andrew just tears streaming down the face. Something they've wanted so badly for so long. Now, in early 1994, the Washington Bullets were plagued by injury problems and they reached out to you with an opportunity to join their team. You played with some interesting teammates, including two of my favourite players of that era, Kenny Skywalker and yep. the, the boy wonder, uh, King Rex Chapman. Uh, yeah. And also other players like uh, Never Nervous, Purvis Allison and yep. the Duck, Kevin Duckworth. Yep. Uh, it sounds like it's more of an all-nickname team than anything. But, um, and uh, Gitza, Gitza. Oh, yeah, George little George. Merson, big Georgie Merrison, who went on to not only be a basketballer, but uh, dabble in the, the area of acting as well. <laughs> That's right, that Billy Crystal movie. Oh, I, <laughs> I do recall that. Now, what were your impressions of that Bullets team during your time with them, you had a few 10-day contracts at the time. Obviously, yeah. you were short on numbers and sometimes you only suited up about eight players. So yeah. what did you think about that time? Well, it was um, a tremendous experience for me because uh, I got an NBA experience. You know, I got to play against uh, NBA players, or you know, albeit not necessarily um, a lot, but enough of an opportunity where you actually got on the court and competed to... to, to um, have a genuine NBA experience. And, you know, they were great guys. Um, you know, uh, you know, another one of the superstar on the team was Tom Gugliotta. Yeah, true. Um, uh, but, but Rex Chapman and, and, and certainly, um, Kenny Walker, they're all very welcoming and, um, it's not the same sort of spirit you have here in Australia. You know, there's very much more of a, a commercial or more, professional attitude to, to the way they go about it. But, um, you know, they were great guys, very welcoming, um, made it easy for me, joking around, certainly happy to take the mickey out of me and <laughs> anything I had to do or offer. But, um, you know, they were fantastic. And, and Rex, again, the thing that stuck out the most was just the athleticism of these guys. I mean, Kenny Walker and, and Rex Chapman, just, I remember the first game we played, and the layup line in, 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 in the warm-up was something like, my goodness. I mean, this is uh, it's almost embarrassing, the athleticism on display. But it was, um, it was probably 
a little difficult because the season was done. You know, they weren't going to make the playoffs. Mm. And I think in that environment where, you know, guys are thinking about their futures and the individual elements of it all, those types of things make for probably a slightly different experience than what it would be if you're on a team that's still um, in control of their destiny and, and, and trying to make the playoffs. It was, uh, you know, they're different sets of circumstances and it's probably a a natural thing that um, the way in which uh, the individuals confront those different circumstances are are going to be going to be different. But um, the biggest thing about it for me is whether or not I was going to get another opportunity of the NBA or not, in my own mind, regardless of what anyone else said, in my own mind, I I think it, it gave me some peace of mind because... You always wonder about the NBA and, and whether or not you can compete or whether or not you're good enough. And although the statistics or the opportunity, if people look back on it and say, well, you know, you didn't, you know, not really a lot to, to gloat about, but it certainly gave me peace of mind in my understanding of, of my abilities and, and where, whether or not, you know, you're capable of competing at that level. Yeah, I can totally understand understand where you're coming from there. And I'll get to your time with the San Antonio Spurs in, in a little while. Now, in a pre-Olympics uh, exhibition game in 1996, as we talked about briefly before, your boomers played Team USA. Shane the Hammer Heel was hitting shots from all over the court. He's hit eight threes and he just had people, John Stockton and whoever else, they were just hanging off his face and he was just drilling shots left, right and centre. But the game was overshadowed by the Charles Barkley uh, contact on, on Shane Hill. But also prior to that incident, Andrew Vlahoff and Carl Malone were also exchanging words. And then you attempted to be the peacemaker, but it seemed to rile uh, Carl Malone <laughs> even further. Looking back, can you just describe your thoughts on that game? Yeah, it's, uh, it was interesting because uh, I, I still remember the look uh, on uh, Carl Malone because, you know, here in Australia or when you're in the international arena and people know who you are and, you, you you know, the way in which you interact with your opposition is such that you go in there and you can often be the peacemaker and you can talk and communicate and you've got that respect um, that's just there because of the history. Mm. Uh, going into this situation, it's fair to say Carl Malone had no idea who Andrew Gaze was and certainly had no idea who Andrew Valve or any of the guys were. Uh, so it was um, there was a little bit of toing and froing going, and, and Andrew Valve was engaged with a conversation with um, Carl Malone, and I sort of went in there to, to be peacemaker. <laughs> he gave me a look that just said, you know, you're in the wrong place here, young man. Just, uh, this is not, Valve, because of his size, could probably just get, gain a, a modicum of more respect in a confrontation than what I would. Um, but, uh, that happened. And then, of course, following, we had the incident with, um, Charles Barkley and Shane Hill. Mm. And, uh, Shane had one of the all-time greats in an, great games in, Australian uniform. It was just a remarkable performance. The, the shooting display was incredible. Oh, yeah. Um, and all added spice when Charles, you know, not knowing who Shane was, you know, Shane's shooting technique is, is very different. And he kicks his legs out. And I, Charles was running by because Hammer was hot and mm. running by and Shane kicks his legs out. And, and I don't think Charles necessarily was going there to intentionally take out Shane's legs, but he was certainly running at him and yeah. put him off his shot. And but 
Shane naturally he gets his legs taken out, falls on his his backside, and he bounces up, and he doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> um, and he does what uh, I think he was taught during his days growing up in Lilydale or wherever it was, and uh, he wasn't just going to cop that laying down, and he. You give him a little hip and shoulder, and you can see, if you ever get to see, you probably see it on YouTube, if you ever get to see, you can always see Charles Barkley thinking, like, I think he was more shocked at the little hip and shoulder that Hammer was in, and, and Hammer was giving him a mouthful. And um, it was backwards and forwards, you're thinking, oh, gee, what's going to happen here? And the refs are sort of trying to take control, and the timeout was called, and they had to cross paths again, and... As they crossed past, Carl Malone was in there, Charles was in there, and they were trying to fly the flag. And, and, and I went in there to fly the flag for Hammer. <laughs> I still remember going in there and putting a hand on uh, Carl Malone. And I touched him. I don't know what it was. The, the, the synapses that run through your arm that send messages to your brain, instantaneously I knew that this is, uh, I'm in the wrong spot and, and what am I doing here? <laughs> I was, um, I could offer very, very little support uh, for Shane, but I remember at the time, because I, I was roommates with Shane um, throughout our entire uh, Australian time with the, with the Boomers. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he's been engaged in some physical altercations, um, whereas I've never uh, been engaged in that type of, Activity, but I remember him always when we always used to muck around. He'd talk about some of the experiences. Um, always telling me, he always used to tell me, mate, you, you got to make sure you get the first one. Even if you're going down, make sure you get one in. And the best way to do that is get the first one in. <laughs> so that in my back of my head, and then seeing him engaged in this this confrontation, and he's got his fist cocked, ready to throw one. I'm thinking he's going to throw one here. <laughs> he's stuck rolling. He's getting all emotional about it. All he's and things sort of got dispersed and I encouraged him enormously to let go and come back to the time out. And I don't know whether it was, a, again, whether he actually listened to me or it was just the way it unfolded, but uh, uh, I knew I could offer very, very little assistance in those circumstances. Oh, for sure. Now, that game was broadcast here uh, in Australia as well, and uh, just as that sort of fracas was happening that you're talking about with that timeout, I went to the ad break and I had no idea what was going on. I was thinking, oh, surely you can't take an ad break now. It's all pushing and shoving and words being exchanged. So it's good to hear a bit more about what actually uh, took place at that time. Well, the thing about it is, is uh, straight after the game, uh, Charles Barkley and the entire uh, USA team were fantastic. You know, they shook our hands. And, and if anything, we probably gained a bit of respect for the way in which we went about it because whether it was Andrew Blahoff or, or Shane Hill or, or whoever it was, and, you know, they pumped us. They would have beaten us close to 40. But um, we didn't take any backward steps, you know. We were just playing them, and, and, and although we had tremendous respect for them, you know, we weren't going to just go bow to them and be submissive uh, under any circumstances. So, uh, you know, I think in, in hindsight – we earn a lot of respect for that particular game. And, and uh, I think in all honesty, it was the catalyst for Shane getting an opportunity to play with the Minnesota Timberwolves in the NBA. Yeah, sure. Cause you put on a, an incredible before uh, shooting performance, just hitting all those shots from so deep uh, out from the basket as well. Now, a few weeks later, you faced the same USA team this time in a much more serious setting in the semifinals at the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, 
the Boomers had a great first half and you only you were trailing by single digits until there was a last second dunk, I think, from Carl Malone to end that first half. You yourself were on fire. You had about 20, 21 points at the time. But yeah. fortunately, you were overrun in the second half. Do you mind just talking a little bit about that game and, and also some of the, the chatter that was happening towards the end between yourself and Reggie Miller and a few others? Yeah, well, there's a bit going on. And again, we, we were taking it right up to him in the first half. And yeah. I think, in all honesty, we were surprising ourselves. We were having a fantastic Olympic Games campaign. You know, yeah. we'd, we'd just come off a, an unbelievable win um, over Croatia in order to get to the to the semi-final game. Yep. And, um, you know, it's just unfortunate way of the draw is that we had to play the United States in the... Um, in, the, in in that semi-final game, if you know, if if, if the system had been a little bit different, we could have been playing against Lithuania, uh, depending on where we'd finished mm-hmm. um, in in that semi-final game. And um, you know, we'd beaten Greece by thirty or forty in the game. We'd beaten Brazil. We'd beaten Croatia. You know, we were just having. Um, in fact, in hindsight, in, of all our Olympic games, that was the best perform. Uh, team or, or, or campaign we'd had that I was involved in. Sure. And, um, yeah, in this game, in the first half, I was fortunate enough to be able to knock down some shots and, and, and I earned a lot. I know I went to the free throw line a lot as well and, you know, through it, uh, we were going about and I was guarding Reggie Miller as well and, and one time <laughs> I accidentally hit him in the head and I said, sorry, mate, and he sort of was a bit angry and... <laughs> I said, and I said, mate, I'm sorry, Reggie. I didn't, you know, said it to him twice. And I remember Shane come up to me and, you know, using language that's inappropriate to be using now, but uh, basically said, told me to, to shut up. You've, you've apologised once. If he doesn't want to take your apology, and he's ripped into Reggie for saying that. So it was, um, you know, in the second half, because I'd done, you know, hit some shots in in the first half, uh <laughs> their defensive intensity had picked right up and yep. Reggie Miller was telling me, that he, you know, I don't know, I couldn't quite understand at the time, but saying he, he, he was putting a cork in my ass, saying that that's, <laughs> he's going to stop me now. I don't know. I Still to this day, I, I, I don't understand. Maybe that was something, the way they go about it, but uh, it was <laughs> him saying that uh, he was going to shut me down and uh, fair to say he did a pretty decent job of it. <laughs> I fouled me one time. I think I in in the second half. I think the only I might have had one field goal, or but I, I think it, most of them came from the free throw line. And uh, I remember went to the free throw line, and he was just giving it to me, telling me that's the only way I was going to score for the rest of the game was from the free throw line, just going off on me. But the same thing. It it's all just the differences, the way the competitive nature of it all. Because as soon as the game finished, they shake your hand, they're happy to have a chat, and it's a, it's a completely different demeanour. About it all, but uh, in the in the cut and thrust of the competition, pretty aggressive. Yeah, sure. Now um, the nineteen ninety seven NBL season, your Tigers started off the season with a bit shaky, off to a three and nine start, and then you rolled off an incredible win streak, uh, about sixteen straight victories, before you met your arch rivals in the uh, championship series, the South East Melbourne Magic. Now, do you mind just explaining perhaps uh, some of the emotions of going through that? win streak and perhaps even when you got to the finals to get your second NBL championship. Yeah, it was it was a fantastic season because it had the such extremes. Uh, starting off the season uh, three and nine, in, in actual fact, we should have been uh, four and eight. 
but what happened was we actually won a game. We beat the Adelaide 36ers, but we started the season without Mark Redke. Mm. And we also had another guy called Jarvis Lang. Yep. And um, Jarvis was our new import who just replaced Dave Simmons. And he was a very good player, but was had was having problems with his knee. And Mark was a late arrival coming back from a stint with the uh, Philadelphia 76ers. So it was a horrendous start of the season. And... The, the the critics were out, you know, fire the coach, what, you know, no good, all those types of things, and we, we were three and nine. Mm. And then um, just through a quirky set of circumstances, got the chance to, to pick up Marcus Timmons, who had just played the previous season with Wollongong Hawks. Mm-hmm. And literally, this is the way the fickle hand of fate can work, was that I was talking to Brett Brown, who was the coach of the Giants at the time, and they were playing against the Wollongong Hawks. And Marcus wasn't with the Hawks, but he'd come back to visit his girlfriend, I believe it was. And as I was talking to Brett Brown, he actually said to me, he said, oh, you know who's just walked? Marcus Timmons has just walked by. <laughs> now, here's a player that you guys should consider. Mm. And I thought, well, is it, what? I said, what's he doing here? He goes, I don't know, he's, he's here. And, <laughs> I said, mate, is there any chance you could just have a chat to him and see what he's doing? Yeah. So he went up and had a chat to him, and he called me back. And he said, oh, he's in town. He's been playing in Europe. He's, he's actually he's available. So I um, then spoke to my dad and, um, and the management of the Tigers. I said, you know what? We've got no one. He's there. <laughs> and we're thinking, oh, yeah, worth a chance. <laughs> so they called him up and said, oh, will you come down? And, and we didn't even sign it. We just said, can you come down and, and have a practice session and you know you might we might want to pick you up for the season and he was like yeah yeah sure i'm here anyway so you know two days later he's on a plane he came down and i reckon literally after the first 20 minutes of the training session we said let's sign him yeah no doubt so we we picked him up and and he was a big part of of us um being transformed that along with getting mark reiki back into the lineup and and um you know, just our season coming together and, and, and end up being a an unbelievable uh, season where we went through, I think we won 16 or 17 in a row. Mm. Won the game, we played the Giants, and that's what Brett always used to say. He goes, man, I got you this player, Marcus Timmons. We played them in the semifinal, <laughs> and we beat them in two straight games. And, um, and then we had to play against uh, the Magic in the final. And, of course, we... Uh, we were able to get over the top of them, but it was we'd won sixteen or seventeen in a row. One game won by a uh, a record margin. I think we won by thirty odd, thirty five, even thirty six. Uh, and then, of course, in game two, in a, in a remarkable turnaround, uh, they got the better of us in a low scoring game. Would have been, it might have been, you're testing my memory here, but in the seventies, maybe the eighties. Mm. which was not our style. And then fortunately for us in, in game three, we were able to regroup and, and get the win. But it was um, a difficult time because we were faced with the prospect of uh, being regarded as the greatest chokers in the history of the game if we weren't able to win that game three. But fortunately, we were able to get over the line and it, it, it sort of rounded off my experiences because we'd won a championship in 93. Yep. Uh, but this was a chance to win one on home soil. And in front of our home fans in front of 15,000 people at the tennis centre. And it was just a, a fantastic 
experience. Yeah, those uh, those years of the NBL in the in the early to mid nineties and a little bit up beyond were just fantastic, and it's uh, hopefully they'll get back there pretty soon too. They're already well on their way now. During your championship years and and beyond, you shared a special chemistry with your teammate Leonard Copeland. Uh, mm-hmm. If I had a, a dollar for every time I heard Stephen Quartermain say or Dean Dean Tillman and say Elliot to Copeland, yeah, I'd, I'd be able to retire. So can you just quickly talk about Leonard and just the impact he made on you personally and, and Australian basketball in general? Leonard Copeland is one of the great guys. He uh, is a good friend of mine. And, uh, you know, he was the reason that one of the prime reasons why I was able to achieve my goal and being a part of a championship winning team, uh, he was a big, big, important piece of that puzzle. And not only did he transform our team and, and take us to the promised land, so to speak. But I think he also had a profound impact on the league. He was the first player, you know, there'd been great athletes come out, James Crawford and, you know, a host of others of just unbelievable athletes. But Leonard at, you know, at 6'5", 6'6", just uh, did things that many um, players weren't able to do. Just just had a gift of athleticism and uh, coming together with the combination of, of my skills and his skills where, you know, all I had to do was throw it anywhere near the rim and to, to, to develop that rapport with another individual where you've just got almost a, a telepathic sense mm-hmm. to know where someone's going to be and, and the uh, the camaraderie we're able to develop to, in, in the alley-oop play and other aspects of the game as well and the way, you know, I think we helped each other out was just, um, you know, it was just a privilege to play alongside the man. He's just uh, had a long, long career in the NBL, had a significant impact uh, on the competition. And, um, you know, I've been very lucky that not only is he a, a, a superstar player, but he's, he's he's equally good bloke as well. So he's and, and, and loves his country and, and still lives here and still happy to call him one of my closest friends. Yeah, no, for sure. Now, I, I reminisced last night and had a look on YouTube at some of the uh, the Tigers highlights over the years and then saw there was a, a package of plays where it's just pretty much all alley-oops from uh, you, you to Lennart and it's just fantastic to see three or four minutes worth of just plays where you're setting each other up but mainly just throwing up massive alley-oops for him to uh, slam through. A lot of it was, you know, and, and it's one of the things that um, I think where very little of the credit goes in fact, none of the credit goes, but is a significant part of it was was with my dad as the coach. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the, those opportunities don't happen randomly; they happen by design. And um, you know, not only was it important for us as part of our strategy in order to, to get a uh, those types of plays going, but I think my dad also had a strong sense of obligation to the entertainment value of the game. Yeah. And um, many coaches, with some of the things that we did, you've got to take the good with the bad. And quite often, you know, perhaps less or more conservative coaches wouldn't allow you to do those types of things. Um, So I think that, you know, he gets no credit for that particular element of what Lennart and I did, but... In uh, in all honesty, it had a lot to do with coaching. It had just as much to do with coaching as it did, you know, Leonard and uh, and I using our skills. Yeah, well, I was a fantastic athletic 
opera style of play, and it was definitely very welcomed by the fans too. Now, at the age of 33, you return back to the NBA with the San Antonio Spurs. Can you just talk about the welcome from that you received from David Robinson on that first day of practice? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned it in your book there, and I, I found it really interesting, given your history um, against him in the past. How, how was he on that first day? Well, the thing about it is I was just uh, astounded that he even knew my name. <laughs> Uh, and I remember coming in and, you know, he's one of the greatest players ever to play the game. Sure. And you're walk, walking into the San Antonio uh, training facility and, and meeting him for the first time and him coming up and uh, introducing himself and knowing my name, it was like one of the greatest moments of my life. I couldn't believe it. But, um, you know, that whole experience is one that uh, it's like a – it's like Chinese whispers that sometimes gets blown out of proportion or the story, you know, gets told differently and becomes something that really wasn't. But my time with, with San Antonio was, uh, you know, I was grateful for the opportunity and had an incredible experience and one of the, the, the most memorable times of my life. But the, the reality of it is uh, I look back and in many sense feel like a bit of a parasite that just – was hanging on sort of there and, and got to enjoy that experience. My, my role with the, with the team, you know, was was as close to non-existent as you possibly come. But nevertheless, uh, you go in there and you do your best. And I was fortunate again to be in the right place at the right time and, um, and have just a, an amazing experience. But the thing about it was is Greg Popovich, he loved, loves the veterans. He loves guys that have been around and, and, and puts a lot of, weight on experience and character mm-hmm. and um, buying into a system, those types of things. So um, through good fortune, somehow or other, uh, in 1998 World Championships, where I certainly didn't have one of my better international campaigns, he saw a little something in me and, and gave me that opportunity for which um, I'm forever indebted. For sure, yeah, definitely. Now, Steve Kerr is another one of my all-time favourite players, particularly given he played on the Bulls, and I'm such a big fan of the Bulls uh, in that whole Jordan era. Uh, he obviously was the crucial role in Game 6 of the 1997 NBA Finals when he hit the, the game <laughs> shot. Yep. Um, are you able to perhaps just talk about being a teammate of Steve on that Spurs team and also you, the relationship that you enjoy with him? Yeah, and still do. He's, he's another guy that uh, I've kept a, a little bit of contact with and hmm. – um, you know, he's just a, a guy that you look at, you think he's six foot three, not particularly quick, pasty white guy that, <laughs> you know, you, you, you'd easily pass him over as the ball boy if you didn't know who he was. Mm. Um, but, uh, highly competitive. He, he looks like this mild, meek sort of guy that you, 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 you look at and you're thinking, you know, oh, what a nice guy, and he is. He's a genuine nice guy, but unbelievably competitive. Yep. And um, fiercely committed and uh, a real high work ethic. And when you've got his physical limitations, that's what it's going to take in order to, to find your way on a, an NBA roster. And he had a skill and he played a role and he, and, he, and he played it beautifully both at San Antonio and with the Chicago Bulls and has gone on to be, you know, five NBA championship rings is, um, I think that is nothing short of remarkable. And, and sure, there's, 
a lot of good luck along the way, but but more importantly, there's uh, there's commitment and work ethic and all those things that have he's deserved every ounce of success that uh, he's been able to achieve. And I got to know him really well, and and we he loves golf as well. So after most practice sessions, we have our President's Cup going where we play one on one President's Cup, <laughs> and. Um, and yeah, it was uh, you know all the team, all the guys on the on the Spurs team. They were veterans. They fiercely competitive, but you know I don't think they they had the same ego or carried on with the same bravado as a lot of the other superstars that uh, you saw, you still see in the NBA. Yeah. Very humble and just. Uh, Guys that uh, high character guys that that really bought into a system and and and, and really embraced the the team ethics. Yeah, sure. Now, one more Spurs question for you, Andrew. Do you mind just filling us in about a, a certain parcel that you received in the post some months <laughs> after your return back to Australia once you finished your time with the Spurs? This is a, yeah, it's a about probably six weeks, eight weeks after coming back and I get this notification in the letterbox, oh, you've got to come around and, and pick up this parcel. So I go in there to pick up the parcel and the lady says, in order to pick up the parcel, it's going to cost you 900 bucks. <laughs> thinking, 900 bucks? What are you talking about? How is it? Is it a COD? I haven't ordered anything. And they said, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a custom duty thing. It's an international parcel and you've got to pay $900. And I'm like, Who's sending me the parcel? And they said, oh, I don't know. And they go at the back and they get the parcel and they have a look and they come back to me and they said, oh, it's from it's from Mr. David Robinson. <laughs> thinking, what am I to pay 900 bucks? I said, it's probably a gift or something. You know, he's sending me something. They said, well, it's um, unless you pay the 900 bucks, what happens is it gets returned to sender. <laughs> and I said, is there any chance you can open it up and uh, find out what's in it. <laughs> I don't know what's in it. You had no idea. And they said, oh, no, we're not supposed to do that. And I said, well, I don't know. And, and then the lady said, she said, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go out and I'll kind of slid in and I'll, I'll have a look. And she opens it up and she comes back and she says, oh, there's a piece of jewellery in there. And I'm thinking, oh, crikey, what's going on here? And I thought, well, I'd be too embarrassed to send it home, so send it back. So I paid the 900 bucks, and uh, in it, was a uh, a letter from David Robertson just thanking us for thanking me for the season and um, just talking about what a great time he had and was this um, as as a gift in in to memory in memory of the the season was this watch and it's this some sort of watch I'm not into it. he had a watch fetish he loved watches <laughs> and, um, it was his watch that he had engraved on it, uh, 99 Champs, Thanks for the Memories, or something like that. And it had this astronomical value. And because the value was so high, that's why I had to, to pay the duty. So it was a uh, more than happy to pay it, mind you, uh, from what it was. But it was just one of those funny things when you don't know and no one, he, like, he never told it was, he might never said that it was coming. I just, just out of the blue, it just arrived. So it was, uh, I've, ne- I've never actually worn the watch. It's more of a, a trophy for me, but it's yeah. a, a great piece of memorabilia for me. Uh, that's a fantastic story, that one. I'm sure you've been asked about a million times about carrying the Australian flag around the Olympic Stadium at Sydney 2000. In your book, there's a great account, though, of what happened while all the athletes and officials were waiting to be caught over to the main stadium. 
Can you just describe that moment, perhaps, where and when your emotions were truly tested by the response of uh, your fellow Australian athletes? Yeah, it was. We, we actually watched the opening ceremony in the uh, stadium uh, in the, um, I think it's, it was stadium, I, don't know, I forget what they call it, Acer Arena they call it now. Um, it's the indoor stadium right there that's right next door to the the, the main stadium and it, and it holds holds about 20,000 and what happens is all the countries come in and we watch the opening ceremony, all the activities and stuff on the jumbo screen. We had no sound but we could see all the goings on and all the nations sit with each other in this arena and, and are watching the Olympics waiting to go over to march in the opening ceremony and um, you're there a long time and we're sitting around and everyone's getting nervous and uh, you know there's a lot of activities by each of the nations doing various chants and stuff to try and occupy your time because you're there a long like it's a good three hours sort of thing right and eventually um it comes over the announcement uh would greece please proceed to the concourse area to prepare to march in the opening ceremony and greece of course being the the um uh the founders they go first and then it goes in alphabetical order followed by the host nation comes out last so we're waiting around, sitting around, sitting around while all these nations go, and there's another hour and a half, and eventually it comes up with Australia, prepare, you know, head to the concourse area, get ready for the, the walk of, you know, three or 400 metres over to the um, to Stadium Australia. And uh, what happened was is when we uh, assembled in the concourse area, we were right up the back. That is my basketball teammates. Because you're supposed to go in relative order of height. Back then, uh, it was women at the you know, supposed to go first, and then men at the rear, and you go in relative order of height. And because the basketball was the big guys, we were right at the back. So I was there, and I shook all of my teammates' hands and, and wished them well for the um, for the the march in the opening ceremony. And I had to make my way up to the to the front. So I was like. You know, see you later, boys. I'm up the front of the bus. All the yeah. and um, as I uh, turned to to walk and to make my way to to up the front to get the flag and and lead the team over, um, you know, it was a big Australian team on home soil, so it was probably about four or five hundred individual athletes and administrators. And as I've done that, I was, as I'm walking through them, it's like started all this big clapping and cheering. And it was almost like a, a parting of the Red Sea where the athletes moved aside and there was like this alleyway for me to walk up to the front. And as I'm walking up, I'm high-fiving and slapping everyone's hand as I'm making my way through the Australian team. And, um, you know, to be honoured in that way, the most, you know, successful or the successful athletes this country can produce, being in this environment, being recognised that, and hearing them cheer and scream and carry on as I made my way through them all to go to the front to take the Australian flag to walk over um, and then, of course, introduce Australia to the world for the uh, in the opening ceremony is actually more memorable and, and, and more significant that moment for me than it was stepping foot out in front of 120,000 people and, and, and waving this, the, the flag around to, to sort of be recognised by the, in that way by the other athletes and your peers was just uh, a real 
buzz and a, a, a memorable thing that uh, meant a lot to me. Yeah, no, no doubt. That's uh, an amazing experience and a great recollection for you to have. Now, moving on, uh, I'll have to get quickly through these questions to let you go. You've been so generous with your time, so thank you again. Uh, the Boomers went on to finish fourth overall at those 2,000 games, which, again, equaled the best ever placing uh, at an Olympics for the men's team. Now, with the advent of the excellent NBL TV and the regular free-to-air broadcasts, do you believe that the NBL can can one day, hopefully one day soon, rise up to those historic heights that it experienced during the 1990s and, and your playing days? Well, we hope so. I think that's everyone's uh, doing their absolutely very best to, to try and get to that. Um, I, I'm of the, the opinion, I, I still think there needs to be some significant reforms go on for the NBL in order to get it um, back on the path, but I think those reforms are, are a work in progress. We've already seen some changes, and unfortunately there's been some difficult times and we've, we've lost some a number of teams along the journey. Um, you know, we are at a, a pretty critical phase. There's some real good things happening now with Channel 10 and, of course, with NBL TV and the way in which the people can access the sport has been fantastic. You know, I think numbers are up, attendances are up, you know, people subscribing, getting the opportunity to, to experience the NBL uh, are increasing. But uh, ultimately, the, the the model, the revenue model has to work. It's got to be financially viable for teams. And, um, you know, I think that we've got to find ways to generate more revenue. And, you know, in the interim, while we're doing that, there, there, there may need to be some further adjustments to the, the cost of clubs. So it's a... Um, a difficult circumstances. We're very fortunate that the NBL right now, uh, most of the teams are are owned by successful entrepreneurial individuals that are investing a lot of time and resources into the game. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we're hopeful that 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 we can continue to grow the game, and and uh, their investment is not going to be in vain. So. You know, there are some really, really good things happening, but there's a lot of work to be done. And and, um, in my personal opinion is that uh, there probably still needs to be further reforms in order to, uh, to grow the game. Yeah, well, I just hope that it does get uh, the recognition it deserves here in Australia because it's a fantastic product and we just uh, hope that it goes from strength to strength. Now, just before we end our conversation, Andrew, would you like to maybe just keep, I'll let people know what you're up to these days. And I know you're involved in many different things, including the uh, the NBL itself. The, you have your own podcast with um, Grantley Bernard as well and on SEN. What sort of stuff do you get up to these days? I do a, a bit of media work. I, I'm, I'm commentating the games uh, as well, doing some of the games with Channel 10 mm-hmm. and um, and and one, I should say, because it's also on one on Friday nights. Yes. Uh, I'm doing the uh, – I do that stuff uh, with Grantley Bernard. We have a bit of fun with it, and that's for the NBL. The NBL put that podcast together, and we just um, come in there and, and, and try – we provide the content, of course. Yeah. Grantley does most of the work, and uh, – we come in there and just get the opportunity to talk some hoops, so that's a bit of fun. And then I do uh, 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 sort of a, a semi-permanent type role with SEN in Melbourne on the radio, so eleven sixteen SEN. Mm-hmm. And then, and from a basketball perspective, I'm, I'm coaching at the junior ranks, and uh, I also have done some coaching since retiring. Each year, I, I take some teams to China yep. with some of our NBL players, virtually just all-star teams. 
um, either SEABL players or state league players from around the country or, NB, you know, NBL players and uh, put together a tour and I coached that team every year and, and coaching at the junior ranks with the Melbourne Tigers youth league team as well. So that's um, how I still play on a Monday night in the uh, domestic competition here in, in Melbourne. Excellent. Very, very slowly. <laughs> and, um I'm also on the board of Basketball Australia, trying to help out there as well. So, pretty active, plenty on, but it's uh, it's generally generally good fun, and and uh, hopefully it's uh, it's a way of of giving back a little bit for for and, and repaying some of the um, tremendous experiences and opportunities that I've received out of the great game. Yep, no, you're a very, very busy man, and I know I'm holding you up right now for mostly attending one of your coaching commitments, so I'd better let you go, but thank you very much for chatting with me today. People can keep in touch with you on Twitter, at AndrewGaze10, and thank you very much for chatting with me. It's been a fantastic experience. No, good on you, Adam, and good luck. Keep up the good work, mate. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tune in and look forward to hearing others that you uh, get to do a podcast with. That's very kind of you. Thank you. And no worries, mate. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, inallairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please visit the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.